text of the Bible, the lost sheep. This is Jesus, who is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. While Jesus was on earth, he taught everyone about God's love. He healed many people from their sickness, performed many miracles like calming storms, and even raised people from the dead. Jesus taught everyone about God's love. All kinds of people would come to hear Jesus speak, including tax collectors and people who made bad choices. This made the Pharisees and Jewish leaders mad. Ugh, yuck. They didn't think that Jesus should be around these kind of people. Hmm. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he will joyfully carry it home. When he gets home, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Oh, everyone, come here, come here. Celebrate with me, because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who returns to God than over 99 others who haven't strayed away. And we say amen, right? Amen. I want to welcome everybody again this morning. So glad that you are here and uh, enjoying uh, your weekend with us. Uh, thankful for uh, all that you guys do and the way you guys serve this community. Uh, it is Memorial Day, and in honor of our people that have served in our armed forces, we want to recognize you all and say thank you to you. I know that most of you would probably rather not stand, but I think in the essence of just honoring you and letting people know that you have given that time and made that effort, if you wouldn't mind standing to be recognized uh, for your sacrifice, just for a moment. If you were in the armed forces or currently serving, please stand if you would for us. Thank y'all. Hey, it's good to have you here today too, Um, but we are glad that y'all are here. Uh, We're going to be in Luke chapter 15, so grab your Bible. We'll be there. You can uh, follow along in our bulletin and our app. And as we get started, I just want to show you something. In this bag, I have for you an unsolved Rubik's Cube. I'm going to put this in this bag. We're going to just leave this here for just a moment. Now, As we get to Luke chapter 15 this morning, we are going to get to talk about Jesus's not most famous, but one of his most famous parables. But I want to begin with a quick word about what a parable is. It's been common to probably hear that a parable, and maybe you grew up like me, you heard that it is a earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That's what I heard as a kid. And I get what people were trying to say when they defined a parable that way. 
And I'm not trying to dunk on anyone with this, but as a response to that definition, I want to just simply say, not quite. To define a parable that way, in fact, removes the power of the parable. Jesus used parables. He used them often. And his primary means of using parables was to convey the idea, not that I'm telling you an earthly story with a distant heavenly meaning, but I'm telling you a story to show you what it looks like when the kingdom of heaven invades earth. So by that definition, we were actually pushing people away from the actual meaning of a parable. A parable is Jesus's main method of teaching his main message. The kingdom has come near. Now, let us change. So my definition, and I want to give you this morning, of a parable is this. A parable is a subversive story. Subversive means it comes under. It works its way through cracks. It comes from somewhere else. But a parable is a subversive story meant to dismantle the way you view the world. It is a paradigm-shifting thing, sometimes in great succession, often in slow, incremental change. But another way to think about any parable that Jesus is going to share is parables are going to comfort and they are going to confront. And the reason we're beginning this way is I want us to have this in mind as we get started and before we read the parable of the lost sheep. A parable is going to confront us with a truth about ourself and then often shift our paradigm with a comfort about a truth in God. It's a subversive come up through the cracks story that is going to reveal to us new reality. So Jesus, as he tells parables, and we'll be in Luke 15 today, which is probably the three most famous parables of all time. But Jesus, as he tells him all throughout the Gospels, will say things like, let me tell you what God is like. Let me tell you what the kingdom is like. It's not like what you expect. It is a mustard seed. Let me tell you what the kingdom is like. It is like a treasure hidden in a field that is so great that you wouldn't just add it to your portfolio. You would get rid of your portfolio to get it. You would sell everything you have. Jesus speaks in parables about soil and nets and fish and coins and fields and a lost son. And for us today, he is going to talk about sheep. Jesus used story pictures to deliver us and the audience then that was speaking directly and hearing from Jesus directly and for us now to give us a new and fresh vision of what it looks like to follow him. Parables are a master teaching method employed by Jesus. They want us, they're there to shock us, to move us, for us to go, I've never thought about life this way. And today's parable is no different. It's about a hundred sheep and then this incredible shepherd. And so my thought and my prayer and my hope is whether we have read this story one time or this is the thousandth plus time that we have heard this parable. My prayer is that it will disrupt us, that it will confront us, 
but it will also comfort us. See, we put in here, like a parable is supposed to do, we put in here a Rubik's Cube that was unsolved. I'm going to touch this Rubik's Cube just a little bit. I'm going to pull it out, and it's solved. Right? Now, how did I do that? Magic. That's what a parable is supposed to do. It's still unsolved. (laughs) Gotcha. All right. Coleman taught me that. So thank you, Coleman. That's what a parable is supposed to do. It worked. I was like so scared that wasn't going to work. So let's get into this passage. Luke chapter 15, 1 through 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Now that's our start. Our little video for kids there, which I hope got your attention made that point. Tax collectors and sinners are gathering around Jesus. But, there's another audience, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, or your your version may say murmured. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them, they said. Then Jesus told them this parable. So in response to his audience that is wanting together and in response to his audience that doesn't want them together, he says this. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then... He calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. The word of the Lord. May it comfort us and may it confront us. So last summer, Alice and I got to go on this great vacation for our 20th anniversary. We went to the Pacific Northwest, which neither of us had ever been there before. Up north of Seattle, we went to a few islands and we went up there and stayed for several days. And and our experience with coastal cities and the culture of coastal cities is very minimal at best. We don't understand how things work up there. We both grew up in Oklahoma. Now we're in Texas. We have been landlocked people most of our lives. So being next to a coast and near water was weird to us, especially when we were so far north, we were only a few miles from Canada. So we flew into Seattle and by the time we got our car and got it rented and got through all that and all, you know, it takes forever. We were going towards our destination north of Seattle and it was already dark. We really had never been there, of course, so you do what you do, right? You get out Google Maps, you put in your address, and you start listening to a little Google voice lady telling you what to do, right? As we got out of the city, our map gave us an option. We wanted to get there quickly. We were exhausted. We've been on planes all day. And the option came up, and the lady said, you can save 30 minutes by taking a left and getting on a toll road. When we heard that, Allison was looking at the map, And we thought, man, only catch, it's a toll road, no big deal. We grew up in Oklahoma. They're the land of casinos and toll roads, right? (laughs) 
We know that. So we took it. So we took this left at the fork. And when we got a little closer, Allison was zooming in on what this toll road was going to look like. Because all we could see was we knew we were next to the coast. And out there where we were supposed to find a toll road in front of us, we knew it was in front of us. All there was was complete darkness. So we started having this discussion. What is this toll road going to look like? She says, well, here it is on the map. It looks like it goes straight across the water. And that other island, you could see lights on the other island, was out there. And she was like, well, it's got to be a bridge. I'm like, there's got to be lights if it's a bridge. And then I come up with this brilliant idea. It's got to be a tunnel. They just dug a tunnel. That's got to be what we're paying for. Well, we get to the toll booth, and we still don't know what it is. We pay for our toll. It was 18 bucks. I was like, holy cow, this isn't Oklahoma, right? <laughs> it was $18. Still, it was worth it. We drive up, and there's this guy standing there at this other way station, and he's pointing us left. I'm thinking, all right, we're getting to this tunnel. Still can't see what's going up there. We have been, I have convinced my wife it's a tunnel. We're ready to drive under this tunnel. We're like, this would be cool. Let's try to hold our breath, right? That type of thing. We turn, and we don't get on a road. We don't get on a bridge. We drive onto a boat. We were totally shocked. Okies were going. We just parked our car on a boat. The toll road isn't a bridge, it's a ferry. And we slowly made our way across the water. Well, that is what Jesus is somewhat trying to do. I had no mindset or framework or worldview that made me think that the way you get across water is by getting on a, another vehicle. I had no framework for that. My world is one of bridges and roads and occasionally a tunnel. This is what Jesus is getting at. He's telling us this parable, no matter again, if we've heard it once or a thousand times, that the way you've built your mind is around thinking about God in roads and bridges and perhaps even a tunnel, but I'm gonna show you a God who does something totally unexpected. It's a God who shows up on a boat. He's trying to turn our experience upside down. It's a subversive idea. So let's let it be. Let's let this be strange. Let this, let's let this be challenging. Leaving 99 good sheep to find one lost one is unheard of. It's ludicrous. It's insane. So we should be asking our first question today and our only question today is this. Who does this? That's what his audience would be asking. Because in their world, and even in our world today, even though we're pretty familiar with this passage, the answer would be no one. No one leaves the 99 to go get one. I read some of this with Anderson this week, and I said, what do you think about that? And he gave this great example. He just said, if I had $100 in $1 bills, and I lost one at Canadian high school, I wouldn't leave my wallet sitting around to go find $1. I was like, that's a good point. He was getting into the text. We wouldn't do this. That's exactly what Jesus is trying to do. And even more so in first century Galilee, shepherds aren't even the owners of the sheep. The owner of the sheep doesn't go out to do the hard job of watching sheep. Hit is a he hires somebody. He hires a hired hand. And those hired hands, according to first century rabbis, to be a shepherd was to be 
part of a nasty group of people. Some rabbis said, if your job is to be a shepherd, you are counted among those. And then they list whose reputation or whose occupation is gambling, camel trading, and tax collecting. So Jesus here is shocking his listeners by going, let me tell you about a shepherd who isn't just there as a hired hand, but is there and acts totally different than any of us would. This shepherd is different. He's a shepherd who goes seeking. Now we're not told why he goes seeking, right? Is he's, the sheep is lost. Is the sheep sick? Is the sheep distracted? Did it end up following another herd? I don't understand sheep very well, so what I wanted to do this week was find somebody who did. So I called Colby Leach. Colby's not here with us this morning, but Colby gave me some great insight. I should have called Matt and, and Amanda too, right? <laughs> sheep do some dumb things, Colby said. I called Colby and I said, tell me about sheep. And he goes, first line he said is, he goes, well, they're a lot like humans. They're easily distracted. <laughs> and I laughed and I thought that was great. And then he went on to tell me that, that the, how they're distracted is that sheep learn routine. And his sheep in particular, when they go feed their, their little lambs, they have a routine. And that routine is they go walk them. And then after the walk, those sheep turn and run back to the pens because that's where they know they're going to be fed. But he said, what's crazy is those sheep, although we've done it many, many times, and they know that's exactly where they're supposed to go. If there's any distraction around, those sheep can get lost. They're sprinting full speed. And in Colby's case, what it is, is he said, without a doubt, if the three miniature donkeys we have are near them, they get distracted by the donkeys. Then he told me this great story I want to share with you. He said, what happens almost every night is the sheep get lost because as they take off sprinting towards the leech's three miniature donkeys, which I didn't know they had, my first thought was sermon prop next week, right? Let's get a donkey in here, right? <laughs> right? But they'll t- the sheep will take off running. The donkeys will see the sheep running, think that the sheep are charging the miniature donkeys. The donkeys will then start running, and then the sheep get distracted and think they need to sh- uh, chase the donkeys. And it happens over and over again. So we're not told why they're lost, but Colby helped me think about that sheep make no sense. Their actions make no sense. And we don't either, do we? We're easily distracted. As sheep chase donkeys, we we chase false identities. As sheep get maybe lost because something else comes by or they get stuck in something, we get stuck in bad habits. We wander away. We are maybe on task and with the herd and being shepherded by the great and good shepherd, but then we wonder from the beautiful life that God has prepared. And I want you to think about it this way in three ways today. Whatever you picture, when you close your eyes and think about God, whatever you would write down in an essay on this is how I describe God, it would probably be hard for any of us, myself included, to match Jesus' scandalous view 
of God as the good shepherd in this parable. Because he is going to give us incredible perspective on who does this, who leaves the 99, your father, your Lord. And the first thing I want to show you here is that what Jesus is doing to subvert our ideas is this. He's showing us and he's showing the Pharisees that are listening and the teachers of the law who think they've got it all figured out that law, to them, lost means lost. Jesus is showing them, no, that is not how the shepherd works. Lost means loved. Let this settle on you and think about if you've been a Christian for 40, 50 decades, however long it is, or just a little bit, or you're exploring Christianity, you need to understand this. We need this to blow our minds. Being lost does not mean your only option is to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go find God. Yes, you need to choose him. But as you search and seek, you do it, Jesus is saying, knowing that being lost means God is coming to find you. Amen, church? Man, that's powerful. That we have a shepherd who will say the 99 are safe in the open country. Let me go find the one. God is the hound of heaven. He seeks us out. He's looking for those who go astray. Those who wander, those who are lost are not going to be stuck there if they will turn around and you all know this, when you've wondered, you've turned around, what does God do? He's followed you even into those dark places. And you turn, and there he is. That's why repentance is not just turning away, it's turning to. It's turning towards. I heard this story, and I'm gonna show you a little video of it to let this young lady, she's not that young, I guess, she's probably my age or older, but I heard her story this week and I wanna show some of it to you, but I wanna tell a little of it before we get there. This lady that you're gonna see here in a minute, her name's Sean. And at age 17, Sean had a dark secret. It was at the end of her senior year of high school and she was devastated that at this young age before she was even 18 and just before her graduation, she got pregnant. And she did what many young ladies would do in that situation without anywhere to turn. She hid the news from her family, hid the news from her boyfriend and sought out what she believed was her only solution and she had an abortion. Then she went on to college as if nothing had changed. In fact, she would even say she kind of just felt relieved that her life was not sidelined for a little bit. In college though, she continued to be a partier a self-described partier. She, descri she describes herself as partying more than just the weekends, but anytime she could. She parties with friends, classmates, coworkers. And at age 21, again, just before she graduated college, she got pregnant again. And history repeated itself. She knew what to do now. She told no one, and she quietly received a second abortion. But she says in her story, but this time something was different. Instead of feeling like, okay, I get to move on, all she felt after her second abortion was emptiness. 
shame. And as a young 20-something, Sean was already a mess. She didn't figure it out even then. She sought wholeness from other men, peace from alcohol. She became an alcoholic. Somewhere along the line, she met a man named Curtis who later became her future husband. He was not a follower of Jesus. He didn't know God. But the one thing he brought to her life is at least he was supportive and stable, something she had never had. So Sean and Curtis got married. They had two kids. And everything was going great. But then as her kids turned about ages two and three, two and four, a familiar, horrible feeling returned to Sean's life. Shame. She hadn't drunk, drank in a while, but she couldn't shake the feeling and the guilt and the accusation that kept coming into her mind that you, Sean, should have four kids, not two. She never shared it. But in response to those feelings, she went to the only place she could go. She would drink. She would drink away the guilt, drink away the pain and the sorrow. Eventually, it led to some very dark places where she hit rock bottom and she finally started to seek some recovery. And I want to pick up her story where she begins to talk about what happened as God found her in her recovery. So pay attention to these first few lines as we finish out her story. Part of my recovery was a curriculum for post-abortion healing. And what I didn't know at the time is that this was a Bible study. It was a Bible study called Forgiven and Set Free. And it was in that study that I understood for the first time, really, that the cross was big enough for all sin, you know, even the sin of abortion. <clears throat> and when I really looked at it for what it was and brought all of that to light, then I could, like, deal with it. So instead of just stuffing it down and just trying to make it go away, when all of that was brought out and I was able to share that with someone else who understood what that felt like, and then I was able just to give that to the Lord and just, Jesus, if you can, forgive me, would you? And then forgiveness was immediate. The healing took time, and I'm still healing, I think, but bringing those abortions to light and allowing Jesus to take that, like, that was a game changer. And to really understand that when he went to the cross, that he died for those abortions, that wrecked me. It still wrecks me. I think the sin of my abortions had me in bondage for so long. I think those abortions are what fueled my addiction. I think those abortions were part of the cycle of my promiscuity, my self-hatred, my loathing. And then when Jesus took that from me and he freed me up from that, like for the first time since I was 17, I could start living like living as the woman that God created me to be living in a way where I didn't feel shame and guilt to be able to wake up every morning and just look in the mirror and just know that, that I was free. Uh, 
I remember Curtis as I was walking through that study and he was always supporting me, always encouraging me. He was my biggest cheerleader. And he just, he told me one day, he said, something's different. He's like, whatever you're doing, like, I'm going to do, we're going to do this together. And so as I was growing closer in my relationship with Jesus, Curtis was just coming alongside me and he was growing in his relationship. And then he met the Lord and we both gave our lives to the Lord. We both were baptized. And then to know that Jesus had saved me and forgiven me so I could be a help to other women, like that gave me purpose and it gave me direction and it gave me a mission. And that's basically what I've been doing for the last 11 years. I've been working with women in recovery and I've been working with women who are post-abortive doing these Bible studies. And then he's used some of the darkest, saddest, most desperate times in my life and he's redeemed those things and he's healed me of those things. And now he's using that for his glory. And that's just, I mean, that's the awesome God that we serve. Like that's our king that would take something so dark, as dark as abortion, and he would redeem that and then use that to bring other women to him. It's incredible. It's so incredible. Amen. Lost means loved. God found Sean right where she was at. And if you think about your own journey, it hasn't been one necessarily of you seeking and looking. It's been also one of God seeking and looking for you. God leaves the 99 to find Sean in a recovery program. Just like he's left the 99 to find you where you are today, maybe even in this place, in this room right now. So wherever you find yourself today, I think what Jesus is telling us, what he's trying to subvert is this idea that God's not close to me, God doesn't care about me. He's subverting that idea and he's telling us lost means loved. But he's also showing us this that's on the screen, right? It's what Sean said is that when I'm found, I, because of grace, go finding, right? Found means finding. When we are lost, then found, you become a finder. God uses what is not to make it so. He takes the broken and heals it to make them seekers and finders. Remember Jesus's audience here, right? He's telling the tax collectors and the sinners, God's out looking for you. But then he's also subtly in this parable telling those churchy Pharisees who have lost their mission, who have stopped their seeking, who have thought that they've arrived and they've got God figured out, that yes, Pharisees, you, found, you were found by God, but then you made the worst mistake as you didn't become a sheep who went to look for the lost as well. And we need to be honest about that for a moment because most of us here in this gathering today, it's not ours to hear ourselves probably. It's certainly not mine to hear this and stand with the sinners and tax collectors. 
Nor is it my place when I hear this story to stand with Jesus and go, you get them. It's my place to stand probably with the Pharisees and realize that I am grateful for my salvation, but be challenged with the thought of has my gratitude moved me towards finding. Once I'm found, I need to go find. See, a lot of us, too many of us, even our churches, our Christian mission statement has become, I will do whatever it takes to make myself comfortable. That's our Christian mission statement. So many churches live by that. And we need to allow Jesus to rock our boat a little bit. A church who values the preferences of the saved over the mission of seeking the lost is on its way to a slow death. Not many amens on that one, huh? The shepherd is revealing to us the good shepherd will risk to find the lost. And we might take the posture and the position of the Pharisees and say, why risk for what we don't yet have? And Jesus says, that is not the way of the kingdom. The kingdom is why not risk what you have so that others can take part. So I wanna give you three questions if you're taking notes, just very quick, no commentary on them. They're not on the screen, but all of us need to think about this. If you are a follower of Jesus, who is the one? First question, who is the one you need to leave the 99 for? Who is the one you will leave the 99 for? Question number two, and this is not only personal, but communal as well, is what needs to change in me and in us so that this church can reach more lost people? And question number three, is what should we sacrifice so that we can reach more, more people? What level of comfort, what level of our things that we prefer, that we ha say we have to have, that actually is working as a barrier against the lost? Because lost means loved, found means finding. And very quickly, the last one, it comes from what Jesus does to wrap it up. Here's what he says. Colby said that uh, the other day when Dylan picked up his new little lamb, Dylan immediately did what this guy does. He finds the sheep, he throws it over his shoulder, and uh, Colby has a picture of that. I didn't get that from him. But that's what we see from this picture, this shepherd who goes seeking the lost. He finds the lost and he puts it over his shoulders, and then the text says, then he calls his friends and neighbors together. Again, who does this? Who rejoices over this? The next parable is even more ridiculous. Somebody loses a little coin. In our world, a dime, a dollar. If we lose that in the crack of our seats, it loses to the abyss. Who cares, right? There's a bunch of french fries down there too, right? We don't care. That's what's so crazy about this. We don't find it and then call our neighbors and go, hey, we got to have a church meeting tonight. I found my lost sheep and a bunch of french fries. Let's eat them. We don't do that. That's what's so crazy. This guy, this shepherd calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. And then, of course, Jesus connects the dots. He says, I tell you in the same way, there's going to be a party going on in heaven. There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous persons who do not 
need to repent. And so I think our final point today that should upset us, comfort, but comfort us most of all, is we should be comforted in the fact that we have a God who rejoices over us. God rejoices. When a sinner is found, when the lost come near him, he doesn't say from the front row of a church, you dumb sinner, how dare you? Look at all the time you wasted for this church. He doesn't scold out of anger the little lamb. What the Lord does is when we return, when we are allowed to be found, he takes us on his shoulders and he calls us together and he rejoices. What a picture. That may not be the picture of God you think about. May it be the picture of God you have a paradigm shifted towards because that is who God is. Rembrandt from Luke 15 painted this famous painting. You probably can't see it very well. It's a very dark painting. But Rembrandt in the 16th century of the 1500s painted this painting. It's called the parable of the prodigal son. He got it from Luke 15, the third story that Jesus will tell in this section. It's a beautiful painting. If you're able to go to St. Petersburg, Russia, can't go right now, it's in a museum there. It's an incredible painting. I couldn't even get the whole thing on there, but it's incredible in its detail from the compassion the father is showing as the son gets on his knees. And we know that from scripture. As the son gets on his knees, he is proclaiming, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I'm only here to be a slave. And if you can see the whole picture, the son has torn up shoes. He's not even wearing one shoe. One shoe's whole soul is falling off. His clothes are ratty and torn. His head is shaved in shame. But then Rembrandt paints a picture of a father. A father who is at the most, at, the, at both, not only authoritative in his love, but comforting in his love. Notice the hands. Rembrandt even said this, that I painted the hands, one as a tough farmer on the left, a big, strong hand, and the other hand is a woman's hand to show the love of a mother. He did that on purpose, to show a father like God who can do both. It's beautiful. But you also notice, I don't know if you can see it. Yes, you can. Up there in the shadow, there's an older brother. And he's standing outside of the light. Remember, I had this beautiful way, and somebody needs to find his painting, the, the, the storm on the Sea of Galilee. It was stolen from Boston back in the 80s. Nobody knows where it is still. Everybody thinks it was the mafia. Great documentary on Netflix, by the way. Um, but... Uh, Rembrandt had this beautiful ability to put things in light and then in shadow. And if you know the story, he's telling the truth here because Jesus tells the story of not just a lost son, but a found son he closes the story with who doesn't know he's been found. And he stays in the shadows and he's mad and the rejoicing starts by God and there's one guy, the Christian, the follower, the Pharisee, who stands off and goes, I can't believe God would be so gracious. And so you gotta ask yourself as we close today, 
Have you allowed God's unconditional love to make you a person who goes and finds out of unconditional love? Or are you a church member today who sits in the shadows with arms crossed and says, I can't believe we do that. I can't believe that guy got to come home. I can't believe she had an abortion. I can't believe she got pregnant. If you're that person today, I got great news for you. It's the news that Jesus told about the parrot prodigal is what the father says to that son is you have always been with me. Come back home. The same invitation that came to the younger son was the same invitation that went to the older son. The problem with the older son is he think he earned it. He thought he earned it instead of received it. And that's a problem with a lot of us. Is we think because of coming here, we have somehow become the in crowd, the righteous. We are never that. We are only what was lost and are now found. And may we be people who go seek the lost. Rembrandt was able to let God's unconditional love bring the best out of him. I don't know how somebody does that. It's a masterpiece. May we allow God's unconditional love to bring the best out of us. Let's stand together.